as we come together, I, I want to look to the book of Ephesians, and in particular, Ephesians chapter 3. So if you'll turn there, and as you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of background. This, would, this passage would best be studied in the context of everything from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to this point. Well, we don't have that privilege this morning, um, so we'll try to fill in the gaps as much as we can. But uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 14, is one of those great prayers recorded in Scripture. We read another one earlier today, right, um, as part of our worship service. We read the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. And there's a few other great prayers in Scripture that are, that are you know, uh, uh, inscripturated for us, that we could read them, so we could look back and know you know, what the words of great prayers might look like. And this is one of them. Paul breaks out in prayers, I, wanna, I, I, can, I think we could say frequently, in many of his epistles. And, and how you identify them is he'll say something like he says here, for this reason I bow, right? Like he makes it clear that he's about to pray. And what he does by, by, by speaking out or writing down his actual words in his prayer is he models prayer for us. And I would encourage you to think about it this way. He models prayer for us in two ways. On the one hand, he models what praying for each other and for the church looks like, right? As the one praying. That's you, that's me, that's your elders for you. That's hopefully my church as they prayed for you today, right? There's a model of how we might pray for one another. But on the flip side, right? On the other side of that, on the receiving end of that, as we are prayed for as a community, as a church, as believers, there's a sense in which as you look at the priorities of what it is that the apostle is praying for, we start to understand the priorities of what we should be desiring in our own lives. You get what I'm saying? Like we are asking the Lord, would you bless these brothers and sisters with these things? Well, these brothers and sisters, if I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, okay, these are the things that I should consider the blessings that the Lord, if he would pour this to my life, would fulfill and satisfy my spiritual longings. See, we have it on both ends. We have both the model of what it means to pray well, and then on this side, we have the priorities of what we should be living for, what we should be delighting in and what the death and resurrection of Christ, what he has bought us to be. Uh, again, I, I wish we had the context of all of Ephesians. We don't. We have chapter 1, and I'll just give you a quick overview. It is the, God's grand scheme of redemption from before time began, right? Before the laying of the foundations of the, of the earth, he called us. Through the redemption um, that is purchased in the blood of Jesus Christ, he has paid for your sins, the Holy Spirit has sealed you until that day to come. Chapter 1 is about God's magnificent and glorious gospel plan for all those that he's going to rescue. Chapter 2 tells us individually, now how should we understand these things? Well, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you are alive in Christ. Like I said, I love to say, like, dead is, uh, that's an absolute term, right? I heard uh, Jason was sick this week, right? And if Jason wasn't here... Uh, this Sunday, and I said, hey, uh, Jason is sick, and you say to me, oh, okay, well, how sick is he? You know, is he sick, like, watching football sick, you know, or is he, is, you know, is he just relaxing on the couch kind of sick, or is he kind of like, oh, oh, he can't do it, he can't read, he can't get up kind of sick, right? That's relative, sick is relative, right? You might be sick, or you might be just sick of being here. I, I don't know, right? You could be sick of something, but if I say, no, that guy has passed on, Pastor Jason is passed on. He's with the Lord. You know, he, he's passed away. He's dead. You don't go, well, how dead is he? Right? Why isn't he at church? That's an absolute. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And by the death of Christ, we have been made alive. And by the time we get to this part of chapter 3, the first part of chapter 3, he started the prayer. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. See, the way that he phrased that, it sounds like he's saying, on behalf of you Gentiles, I go before the throne. It's like he's about to introduce it. And then there's all these verses in between before we get to the actual prayer in verse 14. 
because he pauses, and in thinking about all the greatness of God's gift of the gospel ministry, of rescuing us sinners and putting us together, he is saying in the earlier part of chapter 3 how wondrous it is that the church of Jesus Christ is composed of people like you, people like me. And what I mean by that is different people from different backgrounds, Gentiles and Jews. Now, I'm assuming most of us in here are probably Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. I'll be honest, I'm a proud Gentile. Eat lots of pork, you know, do all that kind of stuff that Gentiles are, are known to do. And, and you can imagine how unusual for the Jewish person, for the Gentile person, for them who culturally are enemies, they are seated at the same table. We're about to celebrate the Lord's table. They would partake of the same as a constant reminder that you are so different from me, I'm so different from you, and it's okay. That's the value of the community of the redeemed. Your background is way different from mine. I grew up in, uh, in South Bay. You, you guys refer to it as South Bay too, right? Gardena. I went to Perry Junior High School. It's in Gardena. Went to Gardena High School. Not in Gardena. Just kidding. In Gardena, right? right? I, I, like I grew up and it wasn't the best area to grow up in. Nevertheless, that's my background. That might not be your background. That's okay. You don't have to have my background, nor do I have to have your background. We could be really different, but we have the same, we come to the same table. It is the same, it's the same body of Jesus Christ sacrificed for us. It's the same blood of Christ spilled uh, to establish this new covenant in his blood. It's the same Jesus Christ that has rescued us. And because of that, all of that, that's what leads us into this prayer. This prayer for one another, this prayer for the church. And that's why Paul begins in verse 14 by saying, for this reason. See, that's, that's everything I just tried to unpack for you. For what reason? For the reason that Christ has laid down his life to be an atoning sacrifice for people like you, for individuals like me. For sinners whose sins might be different, but nevertheless, all sinners deserving the full condemnation of a holy God, we are rescued by, from our sins by the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Paul is saying, verses 14 and 15, this is my motivation. He said, this is my reason. For this reason, he says, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Two things I want us to catch just as the motivation. That's not the main part. The main part of, of the content of his prayer will come from 16 and following. But here in verses 14 and 15, he gives us his motivation and tells us two things. One, he tells us that he bows his knee before our Heavenly Father. Now, you know, for you, as you read that, and if you're like me, you kind of read that and kind of, kind of move on. Like, okay, it just means he's praying. Because I remember when my kids were young, my, my, I have four kids. My youngest, uh, Micah, is like 15. Well, he's going to be 15 in just a few days, right? So I have no babies in the house, so I'm all mad. Because uh, my oldest, who is married, um, and they're very active in our church, uh, her and her husband, um, but they don't have any babies. And so I have no babies. Right? I have no grandkids. I got no grandbabies. I got no babies in the house. I'm mad. I, I love babies. You know, I want to chase little babies and have fun with them and stuff, right? I, I miss them being little. Well, when they were little, when they were like toddlers, like I would have them go down on their knees and pray by their bedside. That's not weird, right? I would kneel with them. They would kneel next to me, and we would pray. We'd have nightly prayers that way. It was fun. It was cute. And as they're older, now that they're like teenagers and they need to be more responsible for their own faith, we pray together at the dinner table. We pray at family worship. And then I trust that they pray on their own. I don't know if they pray on their knees. I know my youngest, occasionally, you know, I accidentally interrupt him and come into his room, and he might be praying or reading his scripture sometimes on his knees. I, I appreciate that. That's a normal posture of prayer for us, right? That's not weird for us. But can I tell you something that might surprise you? That is an unusual posture of prayer for anyone from the Old Testament on. Like it's common for us today, if I said, hey, would you guys, would you guys kneel? In fact, some churches have in their pews, right, the pew in front of you has a little kneeling thing. Have you guys seen that? It flips down and you put your knees on it so that your knees don't hurt. That's fantastic. That's wonderful, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But as Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees 
The bowing of his knees is unusual. When you go to the outer courts, we would have to go to the Gentile outer courts uh, if we went to the Jerusalem temple, if the temple was in full array. There we could pray, and we wouldn't get down on it. We would stand, right? And, you know, we might, you know, we might close our eyes and fold our hands, and some of you more spiritual might raise your arms and look to the heavens, right? Like, that's how we, that would be the, standing would be the normal posture of prayer. To say that he bows on his knees, that is a position of prayer that means that there is an earnestness, a humble earnestness, a, a desperate need. It was either emotional, it was humbling, it was urgent. That's what it meant. That's what Hannah is not just on her knees, she's like kind of folded over on the steps, right? In the temple area, right? This Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane down, sitting down. Remember they make all those pictures of Jesus, right? Where he's lying down, there's a big old halo. Minus the halo, it's probably pretty accurate. He's like, he's like on his knees, he's, he's, he's earnest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Paul is saying, he is emphasizing the earnestness. This is how I pray for you. This is how significant the things I'm about to write down are as I take them before our Father. The second thing I want you to notice in verse 15, it's all one sentence, right? Um, verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Our Father, from whom every Family is named. That's a weird statement because you might think, okay, Paul is saying, I'm earnest to pray for you. Pray to our Heavenly Father. And every family is named after our Heavenly Father, right? You're, you're Jehovah. You're Jehovah. You're Jehovah. No. His point is this, <coughs> at least in the Greek, right? The term for father is a wordplay or is similar. It comes from the same root. I just flipped that. The word for family comes from the same root as the word for father. So it's almost like saying that I pray to the father for the fathered. Anyone that has a sense of community, of family, that gets that we exist, right, in bunches. If, if you know that you have this natural sensibility, all humans do, that we do well, we flourish when we are in family, when we are in clan, when we are in tribe, when we are with one another. And it's not surprising that the scriptures, even for the redeemed, is full of these one another commands. How you flesh out your Christian life is often associated with how we relate to one another in the church family. So when it says that I lift, I, I, I bow my knees and I lift these prayers before our Father, from whom every family on, in, in, in heaven and on earth is named, he is saying that God has created such beings that relate to one another as if family. And there's a heavenly Father over them all. In fact, he is the, the resource. He is the reputation. He is the reason why there's such a thing as family, why you find connection with other human beings, why we need to one another and to care for one another in the church body. Churches like yours, <clears throat> excuse me, churches like ours um, that emphasize church membership, we do that because, because of things like this, because our Heavenly Father has declared that we are to join one another, right, as if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, as if we are a community, right, that looks like and functions like a family, a spiritual family. It's meant to be that. In fact, for some of you, right, this is the closest thing to a good family that you have experienced in this life. There's enough sin and brokenness out there to say that your family, your earthly family, may be broken, damaged, and hurtful. But here, you have brothers in Christ. You have sisters in Christ. You have older brothers, older sisters, moms and dads, right, in Christ. And I think that's what Paul's appealing to. He has just talked about how, how crazy people, Jews and Gentiles, people with certain dietary restrictions, and people who could use some dietary restrictions, I mean, they have all been joined together, and they're all hanging out, picnicking, right, sharing the Lord's table. They are enjoying each other's company as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he is trying to say, on this basis, I bow my knees before our Father because he's the one from whom any and every family, anyone that feels connection to one another, he's the source of that. And that's why he feels it's appropriate 
to pray for this church family. That's why it's appropriate for us to pray for our church family. And so if you want to get to the content of his prayers, right, the content of his prayers start in verse 16, and it, it, it'll lead us out into verse 19. And I'll just give you three words to kind of get our minds around it. The first is that is strength, spiritual strength. Paul prays for spiritual strength. All right, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through a spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the, the that tells us this is the content. This is exactly what Paul is praying. He is, he is bowing before our Heavenly Father, and he is saying this, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's a mouthful, right? If you're just reading that, if you're just hearing me say that, I think you kind of go, okay. You need to unpack that little by little because that, that, that was like drinking from a fire hydrant. There's like a whole bunch of words that just flew out of that, right? And there is. Let's break this down. It says first that, that he is praying according to the riches of his glory that you would be strengthened. You'd be strengthened according to the riches of his glory. The word to, to kind of capture there is that, is that preposition, according to, right? Not out of. If someone gives to you according to their wealth, right, and you assume that they are wealthy, that means that they have blessed you significantly and generously. I used to work like at fast food. My parents used to own like fast food places, like this one place at the mall for years, and uh, nobody gives us tips. It's back in the day when you know when you know I was like I don't know I was like middle school, high school, bad attitude because I didn't want to work there. Right? And in, even if there was a tip jar, I don't think anyone would give me tips because I'm like, oh, hey, what do you want? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not friendly, you know, bad boy. And so, you know, not very helpful. But, if, you know, sometimes people will give you a tip, right? And today, there's a tip jar, tip jar everywhere. And because I've worked in fast food, and some of you guys have worked in, like, food service, I tip everybody. Right? Even if it's a buck or two, I just feel like, you know, like, they, well, you didn't do anything. I ordered it, you know, on the thing, and it's right here. I'm picking, I, should, I should leave a tip, right? Like, and it's because you've been on that side where you're doing all this work, and people are kind of not so nice to you, right? You, you leave a tip. If someone leaves you, like, a dollar, that's cool. I mean, I just made a coffee, right? No big deal. I didn't even really make the I just, like, you know, <laughs> there's your coffee. You give me a dollar? Thank you. That's generous. That's nice. Now, if someone was a billionaire, and they showed up, and they gave me a dollar. Well, it's the same thing as, as the pastor coming and just giving you a dollar, right? Like, the tip is the same. That's just out of our, that's out of our wealth, out of whatever we have, a lot or little. It doesn't matter. It just gives you a dollar. But if that same billionaire came by and said, hey, dude, I love this coffee shop. Man, thanks for making my coffee all the time. Faithful, hardworking. I appreciate you. Here's $10,000. He said, dude, that, that's crazy. He said, yeah, it's crazy, but doesn't really hurt me, right? It's like, it's like a drop in the bucket for me, and I thought it would bless you this Christmas time. Here's, here's 10 grand. Just enjoy it. Take your family. Go do something. That is according to his wealth. You know what I'm saying? The, Paul uses this phrase often, according to the riches of God's glory or according to his grace, according to what, and what you have to capture in that is the idea is that it is in the spirit, on the scale in the style of how wealthy God is concerning that thing. And here, the wealth that we're talking about is this glory. How glorious is he? How wealthy, how extravagant, how overflowing is his glory? Because if it is really crazy like it is, if it's infinite like it is, then, then according to that, by that proportion and according to that model, in that manner, according to that style, that's how he blesses you. That's how he blesses me. That we might be strengthened with power through his spirit. I'll just say a quick word of glory, which I think you could do like an eight-part, you know, sermon series on the theological significance of glory and, and not really feel like you have your mind around it. I'm always finding myself wondering, like, what? Like, when you read about God's glory throughout Scripture, there's sometimes this almost this sense where, like, it's like the physical presence of light or something, right? 
they beheld his glory. And it, and it kind of felt like there was like this physical presence of, of his greatness. And I, and I would define glory simply this, this way. I, I think glory simply means, if we want to reduce it down to his bare idea, it means that that is the reputation of God's greatness. But in scripture, the reputation of God's greatness shows up and it completely changes stuff. It is, his reputation is palpable, right? It, it's tangible. When God's glory is revealed, it's like people die because it, it is, right? The matter that his reputation is so immense, his, his reputation of his greatness is so immense that it can consume you. And it's saying that out of that, his reputation of his glory, right? He enriches us to be strengthened with power in the inner man. And so it is according to his endless and deep glory. It is in the inner man. It's a strengthening in the inner man. And it is through the power, right? With power through his spirit. Um, let, let, me, let me cover it this way. Um, the idea that we are strengthened with power in the inner man, in the inner being, you, you should ask yourself, now, now what in the world does that mean? Right? Like Paul, if this is the first and most significant thing, or not the most significant thing, but these are, these are the three significant things that Paul wants to pray for, and he's praying for strengthening in the inner, inner being. What does that mean? Well, it means that there might be power, strength, right, in our spiritual, essential being. By saying the inner being, he means that which is you without all the makeup, without all the dress-up, right? You go to a job interview, or you have gone on your first date, and it's you, but it's kind of a little bit tuned-up version of you, right? Like, if I go to a job interview, I don't want to go like, hey, what's up? You know, and just kind of like, you know, dress like, like I just rolled out of bed, right? I'm probably not going to get that. I'm going to dress up. I'm going to speak like I'm a little bit more intelligent than maybe I am, right? And watch my vocabulary. In a similar way, if you're going on your first date, you probably dress a little nicer. Make sure you don't smell funny, right? You want to look a little bit more presentable. You want to talk about pleasant things. It's like you put there, it's you, but it's the best version of you. But when we say the inner man, we mean that this is just you. This is who you are. This is your core essential being. This is who you are at the very heart. It's got all kinds of weird stuff in it. It's got all kinds of yucky stuff in it, but it's also got some kind of the, the, the best stuff about you in it. And in the inner man, in the true being, in who you are, in all sincerity, in all reality, Paul is saying at that place, he is praying that God, according to the wealth of his glory, might grant to you strength and power, right, through his spirit right there. So what might, that, what might that flesh out like? Or how can we understand that better? Well, I, the, the way that I can understand some things is by its analogy in the physical world, because the physical world we get. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Paul talks about the inner man and the outer man. And he says this. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. There Paul is talking about and comparing the outer man, right? Which is this. You're looking at now Park, the outer man, right? Looks all right. I know. I mean, at least I think so, right? I'm like, okay, that's, that's not bad. 50-something. By the way, I can't remember my age. It's 50, I'm 54. Have you guys ever had that? It was a side thing. Have you ever had that experience where, like, you go to, I don't know, like the DMV or something, and they ask you, hey, what's your age? And you're not sure, <laughs> like, in that moment. I know I'm 50-something, and I'm like, um, I'm, uh, I'm off it. And as I'm, like, in that two, three seconds where I can't remember, I'm thinking, dude, this guy's going to think I'm lying. Right? And he's going he's gonna to get like an officer to come in here. I'm going to have to present papers. Right? And I'm like, I'm 50 of <laughs> And you're doing the math. I told you I'm not good at math. And it's, so sometimes I even say, oh, I'm like, like, so earlier this year I was telling everyone I was 53. And my wife is like, you're 54. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, I'm 54. Right? I'm 53. 54. 
right? Like you're doing stuff like that, right? That, that kind of stuff happens. And as a 54-year-old person, like this, this body is decaying, right? If you're like, I don't know, 16 and under, like you're still on the ascend. Things are going well. Once you get about like 20-something, things are starting to like you're kind of leveled off. And by the time you hit 30, things are going downhill. That's just the reality. I have this thing like, like you know, I need reading glasses, and so my, my, my eye doctor, in their cleverness, they do this weird thing where my right eye, they fully correct it so I could read, like, you know, stuff in the back, right? But my left eye is undercorrected. Anyone that's 50-something knows exactly what I'm talking about. See, most of you guys are like, oh, what are you talking about, right? But if you're, a, if you're a grandfather or if you're a pastor of a church and you're old, like me, right, you get it. And what happens is by undercorrecting this, I'm basically reading everything in front of me with my left eye. My right eye can't read this. It's all blurry, right? And so even when I look at my phone, if I look at my phone, like, you know, when I was 40-something, it's about here. Now I'm 50-something, it's about here. And pretty soon I'm going to need, like, one of those extending things so I can, like, look at the phone from, like, four feet away. I don't know what happens, but this is what happens here. This is the outer man decaying. This is normal. This is our expectation, right? We don't send 80-something-year-olds to defend our country in the front lines. That's not going to go well right? The outer man is decaying, but Paul's point is the inner man can be renewed. And he says that in 2 Corinthians, and this is what he means here, that in the inner being, you might have power. You might have strength. Now, what is strength for? So again, apply this to the outer man. Uh, listen, I, I say it with, I want to say it's with no pride, but I have a little bit of pride, you know, about it. Um, I was pretty strong. You may look at me now and go, yeah, whatever, right? But I, I was. Like, you know, like bench press. I don't know why bench press is the, kind of the, the hallmark of it. But I could, at one point, bench press like 350, right? That's a lot. That's, usually, that's almost an average of two human beings, right? I could, like, press up at least a few times, right? That was really strong. I'm not nearly that strong anymore. So, you know, that's a, that's a past life almost. But the point being that what is strength for? Physical strength. Well, there's two things that strength provides you. One is endurance, and one is capacity, right, to accomplish. This is what strength does. Strength. So when Scripture talks about spiritual thing, strength, here, I think this is what it's talking about, that, that if we are praying for one another, one of the things we should be praying for is inner spiritual strength, a spirit, a Holy Spirit-derived spiritual strength in the inner being. And what that is, is for, what that looks like, what that is intended to be, is not just like, whoop, I just power up, right? For what purpose? I don't know. I, I'm glowing, right? No, it is strength to, one, to endure, or two, to accomplish. That's what strength does. What's the point of being strong? Well, that you can handle pressure or difficulty, things that come at you, right? Or that you can accomplish, you could use your strength. So there's all kinds of different ways of thinking of strength. That's just the physical as an illustration because that makes sense to us, but that's in everything. And spiritually speaking, in the, in the inner man, that we would be so strengthened spiritually seems to suggest that you'd have the capacity to withstand much and to accomplish much. Paul saying, this is what I'm praying for you guys. That your spiritual maturity looks like power, ability to stand, and ability to move forward, to make things happen, right? To take the gospel to the world, to stand for the things of Christ, to stand, to move to take forward, right? All of that is included in this idea of spiritual strength. So his prayer is that according to God's wealth of his glory, his reputation of his greatness, he would grant to you to be strengthened. Notice the passive, that you don't strengthen yourself, right? But that he would pour into you the power through his spirit in your inner being so that you have capacity to withstand and to move forward, to press ahead, both of those things, and then verse 17 kind of throws us for a loop, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I, I don't think that we are to look to this as a direct, like, if you get strong enough, then Christ to finally move in. No, because in other parts of Scripture, it makes it clear that Christ indwells every believer already. So what does Paul mean? Paul does this in terms of indwelling, not just with Christ, but with the Spirit. 
right? As a new believer, once you become a believer, once you're redeemed, the Spirit indwells you. You already have the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. And yet, we are called, in Paul's epistles in particular, we are called to be filled with the Spirit. It's like, well, He already indwells me, and yet I'm called to, to be filled by Him or to be filled with Him. And in that same way, Christ indwells us, but He seems to suggest that as we grow in our capacity to endure and to move forward, to work and to do the things that are for the, for the Lord, as we find the, those spiritual purposes with capacities to match, we sense as if Christ is dwelling with us. We sense the dwelling of Christ with us, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's a dwelling, it's a term for dwelling that isn't just sojourning. It is the term for dwelling that is a permanent resident. He, he has moved in, and the idea, I think, is that we sense that dwelling. We are filled with Christ settling into our souls and He becomes the center of everything. That's what it means that He indwells us. The idea of indwelling doesn't mean that, okay, I'm going to take a power pill and then, whoo, I have the Christ power pill, whoo, right? Now I could go share the gospel. I could do all kinds of... Now the idea is that He is enthroned in my heart, in my inner being, and as I enthrone Him, as I acknowledge Him, as I think of Him at the core of my essential being, he just bleeds out in everything that I want to do, right? He is the center of it all. He is the, the center of the universe of my soul. That's what it means that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That by faith, not by earning, and that's why he puts that through faith, right? Everything that he's talked about, the grace of God, he has accomplished it all, Christ has accomplished it all, so that Christ may indwell us and we sense his indwelling, we get it. Because he's the center of us all. That's what it means. All of that put together is what it means that Paul is praying for spiritual strength. There's according, not out of, God's glory. It is that power in the inner being, that power to endure and to accomplish that is established by the Holy Spirit. And the net result of that, or a result of that, is that we have Christ indwelling in us in such a way that our perception of Christ's nearness and His centrality to our lives increases. We become more Christ-centered people because of the strength, the spiritual strength that Paul is praying for. Second, I don't even know what time we're supposed to be done, so hopefully I'm not running too late already, but pray for love, right? Paul prays for love. Uh, take a look at... Um, Verse 17 again, verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, we talked about that, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Rooted and grounded in love. If Paul's first, the first thing that he prays for is spiritual strength, the second thing he prays for is the comprehension of God's love, the comprehension of God's love. I find it interesting that even as Paul prays, here at least, he is not praying that you act out love more. I think he almost assumes that you will act out love more if your concept, if you're thinking about Christ, right, is set in a certain course. I think we find that in the scriptures, that especially in Paul, especially in Ephesians, like he uses these terminologies for knowledge, comprehension, right? For, for depth of insight, wisdom, etc. He uses these cognitive terms so abundantly that it seems like he's addressing us in this way. Listen, if you would think rightly about these things, your life will flow out of that, right? All the good things that we hope from you will flow out of that. Because it's possible for you to do the things that should flow out of that without that comprehensive conviction of what Christ is and what the love of Christ is. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me simplify that. It's possible for you right, uh, to take on some kind of a mission. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed the poor, right? which isn't a bad thing. That's a good thing, and you might do it in the name of God. It's possible for you to, to invite people to church. It's possible for you to think about like, how you could serve like other people in this church. It's possible for you to do all of that 
in your own flesh because you think that that's what you're supposed to do because that's what you've seen other people model to do, and so you're just kind of following suit. It's possible for you to do these things without the inner motivation that is where it's supposed to start. And that's come Paul is praying, not for the outer external application of these things. I'm sure he does that in other occasions as we do for each other regularly, right? But he is praying for the inner convictional, mindful, cognitive convictions, right? That we are convicted, we are convinced of the love of God for us in Christ. See, so he's saying, may you be strengthened with endurance, with capacity to do, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the great degrees of God's love. Rooted and grounded are are great um, illustrations. There are two different illustrations, uh, two different metaphors. One is agricultural, you are rooted, and the other one is architectural, you are grounded, right? Rooted, if you guys have I don't know if any of you guys try to help, you know, your neighbor, your friend with gardening and try to pull up a tree. If you've ever tried, don't, don't do it, you know, just, just to pay the, what, I don't know what it is, like 200, I'll pay 200 bucks that I don't have to pay someone to get rid of that tree because that is difficult work. If you've ever tried to remove a tree, and I'm saying like, unless it's a sapling, like someone literally bought it from Costco and put it in the ground right now, right, which, you know, you can just kick over right? But if it's been there for a few years, and it's even like six inches in diameter, that thing has deep roots. That's a come the wind be whipping it, right? Rains come, it doesn't fall down. And so if a tree has grown to like a foot, right, in terms of its, 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 you know, its barrel, right? Like, you'd be, unless you cut away, there's a root cutter that we didn't know when we're working on our friend's yard. And we're just like, dude, like, we just keep chopping it down, right, and then chopping the stump, and we figure you make the stump so small, and then you would just pop, it would just pop. No, that stump and the whole thing on top is not the issue. It's the roots that's the issue, right, and you've got to cut all that up or else it won't come free. And even after you cut up most of what you can reach, you need a truck with a chain or a rope to pull that thing out. That's how strong these things are. Your car, as strong as it is, versus a tree, the tree probably wins. That's how strong trees are. Why? Because they are rooted. What a wonderful illustration of what Paul wants to see in us, that we be rooted in love. The other is grounded. And I just explained the illustration this way. If you've ever been to like a downtown metro area, like downtown LA, right? And as you're driving through, maybe they just leveled a building and they're going to put up a new building. You can tell how tall the building is by how deep they dig into the ground before they lay the foundation. Like skyscrapers have to have, not, I know architect, right? I, I don't do math, right? I'm not, good at, I'm not good at a lot of stuff, right? I read and I talk about stuff, right? But, well, you have to dig down deep. So if you see a hole that they have dug that's like 40 feet, 50 feet deep, that means it's a pretty tall building. I can't tell you how tall, but it's pretty tall, right? I don't know if it's like equal proportion. I don't think so, right? But you can't build a tall building unless you go deep. That's the grounded part. So both of these illustrations are about enduring stability and is the same kind of concept of strength. And Paul is building on this strength idea by saying that that as you are spiritually strengthened with capacity to endure and to accomplish, then Christ now is indwelling you. You sense that he is your focus and you, you are being rooted and grounded in love. And being rooted and grounded, in fact, those are perfect terms, or perfect tense terms, which means that you have been already rooted. You have been already grounded in love. So he says in verse 18, then may you have strength. So now strength is gone from what what we can endure, what we can accomplish, but now you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That we might, we might grow, we might have that foundation, because it was a foundation that was built at your redemption. You came to faith because you believe that God loved you. He loved you so much that he would send his beloved son to take your place in the punishment you deserved. That's the first and foremost thing about the gospel, right? 
that I, I think that kind of surprises people is that Christianity, right, and our redemption, our salvation, is not because God is so nice that he kind of goes, oh, Nam, man, you are a wicked little boy. And, you know, I'm just going to wink and say, come on in, because I like you. That's the way we might do it. That's not the way that God, the holy and just one, does it. He says, Nam, you deserve eternal punishment. I'll give you a chance, but someone has to pay for your sins. We, we don't wipe slates clean, right? We expunge them by payment. We redeem them. And so someone needs to pay for your entire lifetime of sin. Either you in all of eternity, or I'll send my son. Blameless, without sin, and he'll take your place. See, that, that's where we began. And so we are amazed, right? The Romans 5 amazed, right? How do you know that God loves you? Well, he sent his son to die in your place. That is the depth and the evidence of God's love. There will be a time in your life when you're like, man, like life is so hard. Lord, do you even love me? And all you need to remember is the gospel, the bare basics of the gospel, that if he didn't love you, he would never have sent his son to secure your eternity. Right? And so the love of God has been fully expressed, and no Christian comes to faith without understanding, being rooted and grounded in the love of God. But Paul is saying, Now, may you be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints how deep this goes, how wide this goes, how high this goes. Because it surpasses knowledge, according to verse 19. All right? Now, the breadth, length, height, and depth, right? Let me explain those, because I think, I think we think in geometry terms, at least I do. That's about the best math I got, right? And then, so I think in three dimensions. I think like there's height, right? Length, right? I, 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 I apologize. I'm pausing because I've shown my ignorance already, right? Height, length, and depth, right? That's three dimensions. We measure things in three dimensions. Like how deep is it? How wide is it? How tall is it, right? But think of it in these ways. If you put a drone out, and I don't have a drone, so I don't, know, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I assume, right? Like, there are four directions that if it's floating in the air, that it can go. It, it could go sideways, right? It, it could go the other sideways. No, no, I'm sorry, sorry. You could go sideways, right? I think that's one, right? It could go back and forth, and it can go up and down. That, that's, that's three. Man, I messed that up, right? I, I don't know how I messed that up, right? But I think, I think that I think, let, let me back up and look at this. Let's go to Scripture. It's better than my illustration, right? What is the breadth? Like, how, how wide can this be, right? How long can this go? How high can we measure it, and how down can we go? Oh, let me put it to you in terms that you might appreciate, because I would appreciate that. All the old low-res games, like on your, you know, on, your, you know, on your old PC, right? You control your guy going through the maze by pushing up, meaning forward, or pushing back, meaning back up, or turning this way, right, which is left. We're turning this way, which is right. That's it. One, two, three, four. That's the directional stuff. And he's saying that you might plumb out, like, you, okay, you're already rooted and grounded in love, but now let you kind of explore this out. And he said, Dude, that's awesome. And, and I, I got to say that over the course of my many years of walking with the Lord, I have continued to grow in the marvel of his love for us. Right? Like, I didn't stop at, oh, God loves me so much. He sent his son to die on the cross for my sins. Amen. Let's move on. Let's get to other more, more important stuff. It's like the immensity of God's love is astounding. In terms of the depth of my sinfulness, right? I came to faith, and I've sinned at least once since then. Like, like, like maybe once a day since then. Sin still clings to me, and Christ has never cast me off. Think about your friends and your family when you get irritated, like with your kids. We, for a period of time, we homeschooled our kids. Oh, that was sanctifying for me, man. That was tough. Because especially with math, again, I'm not a mathematician, but I know some math. And I would show them, hey, this is how you do it. I'd walk them through, and i walked them through the example. i go, okay, now you do it. And they do it wrong. And I'm like, dude, I just showed you that like three seconds ago. Let's do it again, like, right? And you, know, you realize that that is never the posture of God's love and grace towards us. 
He's never like, Nam, how many years have you been a Christian? How many decades have you been pastoring a church? Have you been an elder to other? And you still sin? He doesn't even have a condescending tone to me. His love is immense, immeasurable, and unending. And we will plumb the breadth of it, the length of it, the height of it, and the depth of it for all of eternity and will never catch up. That's what verse 19 says. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And what Paul means by that is it surpasses knowledge. doesn't mean like, oh, like, I, you know, I just kind of, my brain stops, right? He means by that it just keeps going. Like you start to realize over the course of hopefully your spiritual life and the depth of your appreciation and worship for who God is and what he's accomplished. And as you do, you realize more and more how great his love for you. But the more that you realize, the even further his love is. I think we'll spend an eternity understanding the depth of what it means that God loves us in Christ. See, Paul's praying for these Christians. He's saying, I'm motivated by this gospel reality that we are a family, right? That we are all one together. And in this gospel-motivated prayer, the first thing he prays for is inner strength, spiritual inner strength, an inner strength that is fueled by God the Holy Spirit, that is according to the riches of God's glory, uh, a strength that will give us in our inner being the capacity to put Christ at the center of it all. And he's also praying for love, right? That's the that's second of the, of the two things that he's praying for, that we might start to plumb the depth of it, Right? The, the, the length of it, the, the height and the, and the width of it. I mean, the, that we might understand fully what is the greatness of God's love for us and realizing that we'll never catch up. We'll never get to the point where we go, oh, here we are at the end. We are, you know, we, we finally figured out how great God's love for us is. The end of the story. I like A.W. Tozer in his Knowledge of the Holy talking about God's love. He says, because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love has no end. Because he is infinite, his love has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. If you rush out to the ocean, you know, if you have a day at the beach with the kids and you bring like a bucket, right, you get go and put that bucket in, and it fills up. You don't diminish the ocean even a little bit, all right? Uh, a pastor friend of mine said he took his kids out to the ocean and trying to illustrate, like, how vast God is, or maybe it was God's love. I can't remember what particular, in, the infinite sense of it is. He says, now, he says to the kids, hey, watch the horizon, okay? Now I'm going to take a big bucket of water out of the ocean, see if it goes down a little bit. Right? And you can understand the, the ridiculousness of this. Right? So you're doing this. Take out a bucket. Say, hey, did it go down? Did it go No. It's still right there. Like, okay. Let me do another one. Did it go down? No. And that's the point. That we would never exhaust the greatness of God's love for us, proved for us initially in the death of Christ for us, and expanded upon again and again as we take the Lord's table, re remembered again and again and again, that I don't deserve this, that you don't deserve this. And we have this because this is the God that we know. This is the God that has rescued us, redeemed us, and whose love for us surpasses final and complete comprehension. The final thing I'll leave you in verse 19 is a third of the three components that he's praying for. One is for spiritual strength. Second is for uh, the comprehension of God's eternal love. And the third, he is praying so that they might find satisfaction or fullness, the fullness of God. Verse I mean, 19 says, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, what we, what we talked about. And this is the last punchline, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with God's fullness. If we go back to the bucket idea, when I plunge that bucket into the ocean water and the water rushes in, I have the fullness of the ocean in the bucket, not all of the ocean in the bucket. 
but I have the fullness of it. In fact, that bucket is overflowing with the fullness that is that ocean. And that is us. We are, we are to live in such a way. Paul is praying that we would prioritize such things, right, as the spiritual strength to endure and to accomplish for his great glory. That we would that we'd be comprehensively filled with a sense of God's love, that we are rooted and grounded and strengthened in our comprehension of his love so that what results from our lives is kind of the manifestation, the glory, right, the reflection of God's glorious love, that we are shining his love to others. And in all of that, he is saying that you might find that to be your fullness. This is your bucket filled up. God himself and all that he has accomplished for you. Can I say this? Love is a powerful thing. Believers know this and unbelievers know this. Because we are made in God's image and even if we tarnish that in our sinfulness, every unbeliever believes that there's something about love that is significant and that it would sin for, that it would kill for, that it would die for. Right? It's that valuable. And if we understand God's love, if we are filled with the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, if we are pursuing a comprehension and a, and a, a worship of how good God is and just kind of basking in the depth and the ocean of God's love, the idea is that we would be filled with this fullness. This is what God intends for us. That's where your fulfillment comes. You don't need others to affirm you. You don't need that person to love you. You don't need this broken relationship to give you something that makes you feel full. You have God in Christ, indwelling, fulfilling, loving, satisfying, and giving you everything that you have purpose to do. Our filledness is a function of our growing in the knowledge of His immeasurable love for us in Christ. We can be filled and fulfilled because of what Christ has done for us. Don't, don't tie your happiness to the temporality of earthly loves. Tie it to eternal love. And, and that constantly and eternally satisfies. doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy, but it means that you will be able to endure and you'll be able to accomplish because this is what we need to pray for. This is what we need to prioritize. This is what we need to pursue and care for in one another. Strength, love, and fulfillment. All of it because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us and how it has been proven again and again in what you have done in the cross. And even as we will transition, Lord, to a time around your table, would you remind us of the immensity of your love and grace towards us, undeserved and yet eternal and infinite. We praise you, Lord, because you deserve all the praise. And even as Ephesians 1 talks about, Lord, and the, the end of all things will be that all of this redemptive work and program would be to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name.